0: Hello and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you as always by Alf Insight. In each episode, we talk to the big names from the world of advertising, marketing and media, to dissect and debate success, ingenuity and the future possibilities for our industry. And today, I'm slightly in terror incognita because we're delving into the world of sport and specifically football, which I have to say isn't my strong suit. So if I use totally inappropriate language here and there and maybe even call it soccer, uh, you'll have to forgive me. Uh, But my guest is Ben Wright, who's Chief Commercial Officer at the English Football League. Now, Ben began his career as brand manager of sponsorship at Carlsberg before taking on roles at the FA, Tottenham Hotspur, and the sports-orientated Wasserman Media Group. He's been with the EFL since 2014, which is actually, of course, in football, an unbelievably long stay in any job, isn't it? Um, So congratulations, Ben, and uh, welcome to the podcast. And so as Chief Commercial Officer, tell me specifically... Uh, what your relationship is with the English Football League, and how, what the role is in specifically there? How much of it is contact with fans? How much of it is is contact with sponsors and other other vital groups?
2: Yeah, thanks, Rory. Uh, you're right. Um, nearly seven years at the EFL. Uh, I, th- I think that is that is actually some some achievement. Um, so, English Football League, we are responsible for seventy two. <laughs> Clubs, a collective of seventy-two clubs, which is the professional clubs in England uh, and Wales outside of the Premier League. We run, uh, we, we run a league competition, which is the Championship, League One, and League Two, which play midweek and every weekend. And we won. We, we run two other cup competitions: uh, the EFL Cup and the EFL Trophy. All of those competitions are sponsored. So the league is sponsored by Skybet. Cup is sponsored by Carabao and the trophy is sponsored by Papa John's. Um, To answer your question what is my role and relationship? It's a good question actually. Um, So I am responsible for all revenue generation and, and marketing for those competitions and the collective of the member clubs. So what that means is in terms of what we market and sell and commercialise on a collective basis, not on a singular basis. Uh, and so predominantly that spans areas such as, as broadcasting, which is, which is the bulk of our income. Um, and obviously that's a, an interesting area. Uh, and, then, and then partnerships, you know, traditionally sponsorship stuff, um, and generally other activity, which I guess really has stemmed into um, a lot of the digital areas. And so to to, to sort of come to the final part of your question, what's my role and relationship? Well, probably if you go back five or six years, it's predominantly with with 72 member clubs and a number of key partners of of ours. Um, And that's still the case. So, uh, you know, day-to-day, that's dealing with the likes of Sky Sports and, 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 and partners like that. However... Uh, and I think it's probably something we'll come on to talk about, what's really changed in my world and I think what is really changing in the sports world is we do have a much more direct relationship with the fan or what you would term as the consumer than we used to. And I think there's two things that have driven that. One is technology uh, and the advent of that. And the second thing is is the effect of the pandemic. Uh, And so, you know, a number of things that we've done over the last few years have resulted in us probably having a much more direct relationship. And, and the analogy I like to use is, we've probably always been a wholesaler. So we've probably always sold our relationship with a supporter via a third party, whether it's a broadcaster, whether it's a partner. And effectively, they've paid us for that privilege and then, and then marketed it on our behalf. And now we're probably moving more towards being a hybrid of a wholesaler and a direct retailer with a direct relationship with the consumer. So there'd be a big parallel there with Formula One, which has, I suppose, gone the same way, hasn't it? Absolutely. So I think, I think you know, if you look at sports in general, what we're all grappling with, I think, is two things. One, how do you balance that direct relationship with the fan and, and the consumption of content and, and, and marketing and, and experience and particularly around around you know live, live broadcasting and content etc. Um, and then whilst maintaining and growing your revenue, but then two, how do you make sure that you don't do that at the expense of everything that you've built up? So, for example, we now stream a lot more matches than we used to direct to consumer. But what we don't want to do is by doing that mean that people don't go and watch our clubs live because that's the product and that's the experience and so yes f1 is exactly the same they are trying to balance how what 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 is your targeting around who goes to your races uh, and who watches from afar and how they consume that and that's no different to us
0: although i suppose they've got a slightly easier decision to make there because it would be you'd be a pretty dedicated <laughs> formula 1 fan if you actually attended every every grand prix live um and it's also interesting, isn't it? Because I think, it's a, I think that's a debate that a lot of sports got wrong for a long time in that they tended to see it as an either-or. And I, I, if you look at American baseball, for example, um, I think it was true of American football as well. They had kind of blackouts, didn't they? You couldn't broadcast a match on television within something like 100 miles of the match being played. And um, in some ways, I think it's, it was probably a mistake. Because if you're too precious about your uh, broadcast content, um, actually, in the longer term, the sport, in fact, suffers. Because I suppose the popularity of a sport isn't just dependent on who watches it, but on how many of their friends watch it and engage. And if you have friends who are fans of the same club, but slightly less keen than you are, if you freeze out people who can't attend loyally it's particularly true i suppose you've also got an issue haven't you in the sense that um there's a huge winner takes all problem in sport you're up against which is that you know as sport becomes more and more international money and viewing and support gets concentrated in fewer and fewer kind of you know disproportionately profitable clubs And so I suppose the direct-to-consumer proposition is particularly valuable to you in the sense that you can't expect to have the kind of airtime that's dedicated to something like the Champions League or something.
2: I mean, I I, I think there's a lot in there, Rory. But, uh, you know, the the interesting bit is the parallel with with the U.S. model. The U.S. model has probably always been the direct opposite of the majority of of English-based models, if you like, which is... You know, there is no winner-takes-all in the US because there's no promotion and relegation. There's salary caps and drafts. And then you come onto to the broadcasting aspects, which is the state-based broadcasters. Um, and so, therefore, their, their blackout that you refer to where it was effectively you had to sell out your stadium and then you could broadcast it outside of, I think, yeah, you're right, a 100-mile radius. Well, that was easier for them to achieve because, of course, they had the state broadcasters where, where we're now into, which is the really interesting bit, is what we know from most of our research is we, we stream all of our midweek matches. Yeah. And, what, and what we effectively know is the majority of our subscribers from the midweek matches come from more than 25 miles away from the stadium. And, and, and the reality is, you know, in my opinion, if you are paying to watch a stream of one of our clubs – on a, on a Tuesday night that kicks off at 7.45 and you live 25 miles away or more, you were never going to that match in the first place. No. So in, so in that instance, we're not cannibalising our audience. But clearly, where we're still a little protective is around the matches that we play at Saturday 3pm where we do have a blackout because we do think that there is a crossover of that audience and that's the bit that we're grappling with about how we move forward in the future. But the, the really interesting bit, Rory, that I think, the other part to it with sports, where I think it also comes into, into marketing, branding and advertising, is what this is giving us is much more of a direct relationship with the consumer yeah. and the data to support that, which you know, you, you raise the aspect of, well, sports have perhaps always had a different model or treated things differently. I think a lot of that comes from understanding your, your supporter and the difference in first party data and what you can now do with that is the real game changer.
0: It's, you, you you spotted a very interesting fact, which has always fascinated me, which is that American sport is is in fact much more socialist than European sport is. In that, as you say, you don't get relegation; you have the draft, salary caps, and everything else. More or less, I mean, obviously you get those teams like the Yankees and so forth in baseball. I suppose the Patriots in uh, foot in American football. But more or less, it's designed to give every kind of local team a chance every few years of hitting the top spot. And um, and, and of course, I suppose you have the, the whole draft system is essentially sort of socialistic, isn't it? In that it tends to feed better players to the clubs that are slightly struggling. Um, but it's some, there's something very interesting there, that there is this huge danger, I think, in, in, in football that... Um, in many ways, what you and I might call real football, which is grassroots fo- roots football, loses out to what you might call. I, mean, I suppose you have this issue in cricket, don't you, with the um, uh, the IPL. Uh, you know, the same thing is happening in lots and lots of sports. In Formula One, I suppose it happened disproportionately early, really. Um, uh, but it, it, it is really interesting because keeping that thing alive uh, is absolutely vital to the health of the whole i mean in terms of the, the you know the feeling of support and talent and so forth um uh, the role you play is actually essential to the game as a whole because without that grassroots contact uh, and without the ability to feed people up through smaller teams uh actually um you know pure elite football would actually would would really be rather dismal, Yeah i mean i, suspect, I think you
2: yeah, you've seen that in 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 the reaction this year to the the stuff around the super league Um, you know our role is very much to be to be part of the pyramid and and we're responsible for 72 clubs but actually we're acutely aware that that's that's another 20 clubs in the Premier League that we have a relationship with but that's also a number of clubs that go way below um, our 72 into the National League and into the grassroots that you talk about because the, the great thing about football in this country is it's got that depth and that history and that heritage I think I think you know, for, for different reasons, possibly, but there were, there were ten thousand people at Wrexham last weekend who are, who, are, who, are, who are a national league club. Now, okay, they may now have some very famous owners, but I think I think the point is, you know, when you've got what is effectively the fifth tier of English football with a, ma- a match with ten thousand people at it, that that shows that. I think where we feel like our product is is particularly appealing is ultimately. Uh, There is less predictability around around the divisions that we that we that we run and manage, and so um, you know most of the games are extremely competitive. Predicting the outcome is a lot harder than in than in perhaps some some of the other other competitions. And even this week, you've got a good example where uh, you know Bournemouth playing at home to Preston in the Championship. Bournemouth unbeaten all season and lose two one at home to Preston, who are slightly below mid table. That's that's the competitiveness that we need to preserve. Uh, and then so so the opposite of the, of the American model with promotion and relegation we think is is critical.
0: Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? Because there have been people. who, um, I occasionally scandalise my football-loving friends by suggesting this, who say that you need to make the goals bigger. They were designed for a time when people were shorter and less athletic and you need to get the score line up, reduce the number of draws... But actually, it's it's to some extent the fact that you get those unexpected arbitrary results, which is the delight of the sport. And football fans are always driven practically insane by any suggestion you should get score you know score lines up. Um, it, it, it is an interesting question because Americans would find you know would find a game with such a low score line which can end in a draw completely baffling in many yeah, ways. Yeah,
2: and, and, and I think the, the beauty of, of of the sport as a whole is that. You can you can also tactically, without getting too much into into the psyche of that, you can manage the game in so many different ways and, and end up with, with with the same result. You know, I've see, I've seen matches over my career where one team's had ninety percent of possession and lost one nil, uh, or yeah. the game ends nil nil. But it's one of the best games I've ever seen, um, and so I think it is all of those nuances and aspects that make it. You know the number one sport in this country by, by a standout by a standout distance, which is which is why which is why it's always been that way, and why and why it continues to get the numbers that it does. Um, you know, I think there will be, and I, I think technology is, is is the aspect of evolution
0: it, it, it's as part si- of that. It's similar, I suppose. It's similar in a way, isn't it? To I always say the person who designed the scoring system for tennis was a genius. Because in a sense, it's completely illogical, you know. But if you scored tennis like basketball, where you had kind of Federer leads Nadal by 107 points to 64, it would actually be unwatchable. And it's the feeling that the losing player is always in with a chance for the duration of the game that makes it really, really interesting. And also the fact that you never quite know what's going to happen in advance, I agree. Whereas, you know, if you had different scoring systems, then... Actually, the very predictability of results would destroy the sport in a funny kind of way. It's highly counterintuitive because it's not just about absolute. As you said, you can have a team which has ninety percent of possession and still loses. And we've got to remember that's probably a feature, not a bug, which is uh, which is fascinating. So your your main sponsor is, I think, Sky it Bet. It is, for, is our, that right? for our league competitions. Yes. Yeah and that obviously partners quite well with their uh, obviously with their uh, carrier deal and their rights deal are there any restrictions on who can sponsor football and what's the chief motivation for sponsorship do you think obviously it varies at the local level and at the national level but what is it particularly uh, that really appeals to sponsors and, and who, can, who can do it? And do you think there are brands who have missed out on this opportunity too? That would be an interesting question.
2: I think it's, it's, quite, it's quite a wide question. If, if I wind back, um, you were kind enough to give a précis of my career at the start of the, uh, of the conversation. If, if I wind back to, to when I started, which, which regrettably is over 20 years ago, then you know, the golden goose for most sponsors was um, a branded logo in a double-page spread in the news of the world. Um, because that was about getting their logo in in context in terms of not just brand awareness, but that but that brand being seen to be aligned to a sport and therefore a target audience where where, where a high volume of people were. And obviously, you know, the world has changed, and so you now get all the different ways that you can you can target and market to an audience, um, particularly via via the advent of technology. So so when when I then come round to what do our sponsors want from us? Different things. So, you know, if I take a recent agreement we did with with a brand called Kazoo, which you'll probably be aware of, done a lot of activity in sports, then I think that is about building awareness quickly um, and using that platform to reach a high number of people, a large element of whom, who are probably their target market, effectively and quickly in their view. And they've done a lot of different, Agreements across a number of different sports to it to reach that. If, if if I look at someone like uh, Papa John's, who we who we've got a relationship with, their relationship with us isn't really about brand awareness. It's about um, context and about being seen to be in the right environment, which is about you know when fans and supporters are watching uh, matches, you know that's aligned with the food they consume, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera you then come on to um, our title sponsorship agreement with, with Skybet. And again, I think that that's changed over a period of time. So again, I go back to relationship with the betting industry. Uh, football's always had a relationship with the betting industry. Um, I think if that is managed responsibly, uh, then 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 that's fine. And we've and we've done a lot of work in that area. But again, I think the betting industry is has used football as a marketing platform in different ways over a period of time so from a Skybet perspective with us again it's not about brand awareness uh people are aware of the brand they've got a large number of customers but it's about um context and, and a lot of the stuff that they do now is about res- promoting responsible gambling because that's the major message that they want to get across so i think there's no one-size-fits-all fit all, approach what i would say is uh, you know our world continues to evolve and the way we work with brands continues to evolve uh, particularly driven by by technology and as I said earlier what's really been interesting is off the back of the pandemic where we've received a lot more uh, CSR type briefs and if I take you finally to an agreement we did with eBay recently well-known obviously very very well-known brand uh, but quite a clever quite a clever deal we did with them because what they effectively did was signed an agreement with the EFL but then said we want to buy all these marketing rights from you but we want to pass them to local businesses within your communities because they're our customers and we want to give them a platform to market to and so that's another different way of 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 how that relationship works that's ingenious tell me a bit more about that so so ebay effectively
0: bought the sponsorship on behalf of their that's correct
2: so right there during the pandemic obviously their number of sellers from a business perspective increased significantly so what you had was lots of, lots of existing companies who needed a different way to get their products to market because of the restrictions that were in place and lots of individuals or groups of individuals who perhaps finished careers and wanted to launch a different, a different offering and had to do that because of the pandemic and therefore needed a platform to do that. So a, a, lot, a significant part of eBay's business now is, is this seller aspect and a lot of these are small local businesses and so the crossover with the 72 clubs that, that we manage, they identified as being significant. And so what they've said is, okay, so um, <laughs> if there is a package of rights at one of those clubs, we would like to give that to one of our sellers in the local area to promote their business. Uh, and, 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 then, and they're running a campaign behind that as well with, with above-the-line advertising. And so it's a really clever way of rewarding their existing sellers showing what they can do to new sellers but also providing the reciprocal benefit via our clubs because they're ingrained in the communities that they operate within
0: that's that's a pretty neat and ingenious response to the pandemic i hadn't heard of that
2: before and that's uh, uh,
0: that's genuinely yeah, and I
2: fantastic think, i think you know the one thing that we've probably seen change from the brands that we deal with post-pandemic and i'm not saying this didn't happen before but it certainly happens and again post pandemic is probably probably fortunate thinking but you know hopefully towards the tail end of the pandemic is uh, w- there's a real sense i think from from the brand community certainly that we engage with that giving back and and being seen to be supportive to the communities that you operate within um, is important um, and, and we've really seen that start to come through and that's not only with brands that we've got relationships with that's with ones that we've got discussions with about the future but also some that we've had discussions with that haven't ended up in a relationship with us but we know that are simply looking in that way
0: it's interesting i suppose because the i mean certain behaviors uh that were heavily driven during the pandemic including obviously i suppose online streaming of matches that obviously rocketed presumably and And those behaviours are quite sticky. I mean, actually, in your case, I think they're sticky (laughs) in a good way in that uh, I I I don't think it'll have that much destructive effect, actually, on people attending live. I think we often get that wrong, that actually the live product is a fundamentally different product. It's the idea, in a sense, that that television was going to destroy cinema, and it doesn't because, you know, they serve different purposes. Although you're watching action play out on a screen at a cinema and on a television. The whole function of cinema is psychologically fundamentally different, just as live music and recorded music are very, very different things. Um, but the other thing, I suppose, with the pandemic is not only did it drive quite a lot of behaviour online, it also probably revived interest in the local, didn't it? Yeah,
2: so I think, you know, just to, to just to sort of... The, the, the first part of what you what you raised there, we we now statistically know that... That, that hasn't changed uh, that dynamic so we can benchmark to season 1920 to two years ago from now um and our attendances as in live attendances in Stadia, are flat versus season 1920 um and our streaming figures are 75% up and so uh, and, and so and so the ah, legacy yeah. of the pandemic in terms of that I don't think is that there's a cannibalization of the audience it's the fact that More people are familiar with the streaming proposition because they've come through the pandemic. I then completely agree with you. Yes, I think the pandemic took people back to what's important in their lives, what's relevant, and particularly from our perspective, you know, all of the good work that our clubs do in the community absolutely shines through there. Um, And, you know, I'll take one club as an example, Port Vale. Uh, you know, I, I'm originally from Stoke-on-Trent myself, so it's a club I know well. You know, Le- League Two club, they delivered 300,000 food parcels to those in need in the local area. Yes. And I think what our clubs have always played an important role in their communities. But what really shone through was actually they're critical to them. Um, and, and, and and that was, you know, just finally on that point, well, that was why, that was one of the reasons why we were adamant that we needed to carry on playing you know, for effectively a full season behind closed doors last season because the relevance and importance to, to people in the communities of still having a Saturday to look forward to, even if they couldn't go to the game, but actually to watch something was of vital yes. importance. And we know um, that that was, you know, really, really important to those peoples, both from a physical and mental perspective.
0: I, I mean, I think there's a wider problem with... Uh, the UK being so heavily weighted towards London, which is that decisions are taken by people who fail to realise that most of life is experienced locally. And I think, I, I am mean, a very interesting thing, I don't know if you've ever investigated this with Sky or someone else, I think one of the most extraordinary things about the UK is the complete lack of local TV. You know, local newspapers have been badly decimated um, by Uh, new technology and the internet and streaming radio and 24-hour rolling news and everything else, um, and just other competing demands on our time. Um, But if you look at Birmingham, Alabama, for example, I think that's got a population of about 200,000 and it has two local TV stations, whereas Birmingham, England has a population of 2 million. And at least until recently, it didn't have one, which is kind of insane when you look at it and for some weird reason local tvs never actually got out of the gates uh, in the uk and so to some extent you have that extraordinary potency i suppose that you 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 know you're a
2: local media owner um which is a great way of looking at it yeah and i think that that works for us on a local basis in terms of that relationship with with the clubs and those supporters i i agree it's probably an interesting debate as to, as to why there isn't the media platform, but there is a lot of local media around our clubs, you know, that clearly feeds that, that interest day to day. I guess what we've tried to do, as I said, is, is is kind of take a step further than that and say, well, actually, how do we have a direct relationship with these individuals anyway? And, and that's why we've done the, the streaming stuff that, that we've done really. Um, and I think that is the evolution of where, Sport in this country will be in the next five to ten years which will be a much more mixed hybrid than you simply needing to have a subscription to watch any particular platform that your content is on mm-hmm.
0: no it's really it's really interesting i mean I, you know it's a trivial sort of anecdotal detail i've attended i just live outside london i attended a couple of kind of town and district council meetings online um now being realistic about it, i don't think I ever would have gone to those meetings physically in person in a hundred years. you know I don't think I would have turned up in some weird council chamber with people wondering what the hell I was doing there and sat on a hard chair for two and a half hours, but having it on in the background on what was I actually streamed it to my t v um I rediscovered the importance of what was happening locally, and we have this incredibly distorted media um i think environment in the u k where national news is, you know, ultimately becomes completely paramount when 90% of that has no bearing on people's day-to-day lives at all. And actually, we slightly denigrate things like potholes and, you know, anything to do with local councils. And we forget the fact of the process that, that actually getting rid of potholes is probably more important to a lot of people than um, uh, peace in the Middle East or whatever it is we like to talk about for self-aggrandizing reasons. And um, so I think I think there's something very interesting there because you have this interesting, I suppose you have this interesting dichotomy that you're both a content provider and you're a medium in your own right. And you see it effectively shifting so that you become... I don't suppose you think you'll ever, you don't think you'll ever go, you'll you'll ever abandon broadcast rights altogether.
3: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers.
2: a one directional shift. I think it's a balance between protecting that live experience from fans in stadium. uh, And then, and then in terms of the direct broadcasting aspects, it's, you know, we've, we've had a great relationship with Sky over a number of years. Their revenue is absolutely critical to us. I think they do a brilliant job with our content. Um, But I think there's also an evolution of that, which is they broadcast aspects of our competitions and and, and we currently stream other aspects and there's that hybrid opportunity and I think you know what what type of that content goes to the general football fan who wants to watch matches over a weekend alongside premier matches alongside other sports you know be that rugby or cricket or golf and who or who is that fan who can't go to every Ipswich Town game but would pay to watch every Ipswich Town game on a stream and that's the marketing challenge. And just to give a plug, that's called iSupport, isn't it? Yeah, that's called iFollow. I'm yeah. sorry, you're yeah, absolutely that's right. Yeah, called that's I follow. I follow. So again, yeah. we've we, we kind of been doing this since since 2017. We started it overseas. So unashamedly, our target audience was expats because we know we had a lot of expats yeah. who couldn't see our matches and would pay for the privilege. Um, and so our, at the majority of our overseas uh, subscribers, you won't be surprised, came from the US. That's it's a lot, a lot of ex- expats, yeah. Australia. Um, and then we started kind of doing some of this, uh, again, on an incremental basis uh, in 2018 in the UK. Uh, and then obviously we had the pandemic. Um, and that meant that we pretty much had to put everything out on there. And so we generated around about £45 million in revenue last season via subscriptions, which is £10 a subscription. Now, to give you some context our clubs would have generated in gate revenue around £250 million. So that's not necessarily a direct replacement, but clearly it was a way no. of making sure that all of those supporters could see the matches and um, generate some revenue back to our clubs in what was a very difficult time.
0: So it's very, it is very interesting that that finding you had, that your, your live attendance is flat compared to a pre-pandemic year, but, but online viewing remains up 75% is pretty much concrete proof that this idea of direct cannibalization's never been right. I mean, it's, the example I always give is if you were the finance director of a restaurant, it would be very easy to say, yes, but if we, if we give people takeaway food, they won't come in and eat. okay, And therefore they won't buy alcohol, so they'll be less profitable. And I think it's, I think it's a misrepresentation of the decision which is that assumes that the decision is, I want to eat at such and such a place. Will I go there in person or will I actually go and um, get takeaway food? In reality, you decide, shall we go and eat out or shall we have a takeaway? And that decision's already taken. And therefore, if you don't offer takeaway food to that 70% of people who've decided they want to takeaway that evening, you're effectively not in the game if you don't offer it. And I think this idea of direct cannibalization is something, I mean, it happens in things I've come across in many industries where people are absolutely paranoid about it. And actually it it turns out to be self, it's a self-limiting belief really, because it's both and much more than it is either or. And um, it's, it's very interesting. I suppose formula one, Formula One, admittedly, you know, the decision was slightly easier for them to take. You also get, I suppose the other thing is, do you do anything distinctive? What do you do for for total super fans? Because the other thing that's worth noting is that one of the things that online allows you to do with Formula One, you get these people who um, I'm probably slightly misrepresenting them, but they're not actually very, very interested in um, actually the race but they find in-car diagnostics absolutely fascinating. You know, so one of the interesting things that online's been able to do for Formula One is those people who find, uh, you know, tyre pressure statistics more interesting than actually racing. Now, obviously, in the case of uh, more local football, or, or um, you, you do get super fans. And one of the great things that online can do is it can give them a depth of content and engagement, um, which is... Uh, you know, appropriate to their level of interest. Do, do, do you have tiered... So does iFollow have kind of tiered membership or it currently is it just uh, one server so, at so a time? Right.
2: Yeah, I think, look, I think, again, it's a really good point. We're probably not uh, quite there yet in terms of the evolution of our journey as as to where you allude to. So if you live overseas, then you can buy a, a full package of of 46 matches, which gives you access to every one of your your club's games. In the UK, we're not quite there yet because we're still grappling with the traditional broadcast model, uh, attendances, and then where we make these matches available from a streaming perspective. And so we don't offer that. Um, And and I think that is something we're looking at closely in terms of what we do at the expiry of our current broadcasting agreement in 2024. Uh, But I think you also touched on another really important area, Rory, which is the super fan that goes to the stadiums that may always go to the stadiums. I think it's about making sure that you give them the best possible experience and you maintain that. And that therefore that is a completely different experience than somebody who's paying 10 pounds to watch it on an iPhone. Um, But very candidly, you know, we've got some understanding of some of this stuff. We've got some really good data and insights, but we're not quite there yet on a full solution. And so I think again, you know, come back to it five years from now, ten years from now, I think this proposition looks very different.
0: Actually, um, I'll, I'll
2: spend a moment for
0: all the listeners here to talk about a trend which I think is uh, rapid but has been largely overlooked or not spoken about, uh, which is the huge growth of uh, effectively direct online viewing on the television itself rather than on portable devices. I think a very large part of it's been driven, by the way, by Samsung's redesign of its choice architecture so nobody ever wants to talk about this because it's it's kind of embarrassing but the extent to which the design of the remote control affects what you watch there is actually an academic paper on this which is extraordinary now it used to be the case if you had a smart tv you turned it on it went to your default freeview or sky br- ca- cable box or satellite box by default and you had to press a weird button in the middle of 47 other buttons, to actually activate the smart features of the TV and start watching, um, uh, effectively, OTT. And what's completely changed, if you get a new Samsung television, I can hold it up now, but of course this is an audio podcast, uh, it comes with a complicated remote control and a very simple remote control, and it brings up the smart hub by default so instead of defaulting to broadcast tv you have this parallel choice which is do you want to watch iplayer do you want to watch youtube do you want to watch netflix so do you do you actually are you thinking of producing apps for smart tvs or do you, or or would you give away a chromecast or something similar um because uh, uh, if you add that with apple okay you've got apple was it airplay you've got you've got effectively the chromecasting thing but one of the statistics i have seen several times is that the um, the volume of actually watching, effectively, internet content on the big screen, uh, that's a trend that hasn't been remarked on enough, but it's very, very big and very fast. I,
2: I, I think, you know, just to start on that, someone gave me a great phrase a few weeks ago, which is, COVID's a habit disruptor. Um, and, I, and I said, oh, actually, it's a habit changer as well. And so one of yeah. the things we found, again, during when we were streaming all the matches behind closed doors was, we gave free access to anybody who had a season ticket at one of our clubs. And so that what that meant was, with due respect to following individuals, a lot of, shall we say, the older generation, who'd never watched on an iPad or an iPhone, had to. And so in the first couple of weeks of the season where we were doing this, we had a significant number of inquiries from um, supporters, predominantly skewed to older supporters effectively saying how do I view this in a browser how do I log in etc 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 and you know what within six weeks of the season starting our complaint or inquiry rate was significantly down on that basis because they'd all got used to it and so and so that's the habit yeah. changer and so then you come down to the viewing experience and we know that younger supporters will watch and consume on a phone or an iPad um, but I think ultimately there is still a a real place for the big screen viewing experience, particularly around key sporting events. Uh, and it's about giving 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 those supporters the choice. Um, so yes, I think in the future we will make the content and available the way you talk in the ways you talk about. But I think it, I think it's that I think it's that spread. It's very it's it's possible and it happens, but it's difficult for seven or eight people to crowd around an iPad. You know, that's a very individual yeah. no. experience. Whereas if you step away from from from, from, from the, uh, the EFL and you look at you know big sporting events the euros this summer, I know they' played behind closed doors but the Lions Tour you know I think they are social experiences where even if you're not at the match, you prefer to watch in groups and that's where the role of watching in the pub watching with with Groups of friends or family around around TV, I think still still will exist, and despite all the changes in technology, I still think you'll have that what you might what you might refer to as very traditional way of of watching key events.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm keen for. I mean, funnily enough, I think there's something I heard. I don't know if you've heard this, which is that when you film for broadcast in 4K, you film football differently. Because the level of resolution means you can act, you can actually have a further away view. Because there's enough quality of detail uh, effectively to replicate what you might call watching from the stands rather more and zooming in on the individual players rather less. I don't know if you've come across this, but it struck me as quite interesting because I was originally sceptical about 4K. I didn't really see that it was that big a deal over HD. And also, it was less of a deal. I mean, if you look at the U- U.S., where their basic television picture was god awful, um, their standard definition was only about five hundred and something lines. Um, I, I, you know, I, I didn't. I mean, the four K, four K is also interesting, and it, it, I, I was completely wrong about all this because you can display text and other information at a high level of detail, and it's it's effectively a monitor. So, you know, the kind of thing you can broadcast on four K. Um, becomes really, really interesting, I think, and I, I don't know if you'd heard this thing that that if if it's you in in really big matches they kind of have the the HD view and the 4K view, and the 4K view is designed for the people who've got the sort of you know 65 inch jumbotron at home with a huge level of um, uh, uh, you know so many trillion pixels of detail,
2: and um, that that struck me as pretty interesting. Uh, n- never occurred to before. I am, I, I am not a 4K expert, Rory, so I'll, I'll have to defer to you on that one. I think that's definitely one way you do know more about the product than I do. What, what I do know is, let me give you a little anecdote about how production has changed from, from, from my perspective. So, when I started in this role, believe it or not, um, the main way we used, to, apart from our live matches which are broadcast on Sky, the main way we used to get uh, content out of our grounds. And I'm only talking in 2014, was there would be a tape in the back of a camera and a man would go round in a van and collect the tape at the end of the game. And I am only talking in 2014. To give you... That, that, so just, that was 2014? Yep. Yep. You were still shunting yep. bits of, um, yep. of tape yep. around? Now, 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 okay. now, let me tell you how far that's moved. For, for, for the majority of our matches, we produce them remotely. So a champion, EFL championship match that'll be played, that's played this weekend is filmed with four cameras at the game. All of the four cameras come out via fibre and they are produced and commentated on outside of that stadium. So four individual feeds come into a mixing desk in, a, in an office way away from that ground. And the director mixes that and then that feed is put back out. So nothing is mixed at the stadium in relation to that particular way of of doing that. It's, It's all called remote production. And so what that means is, one, that's cheaper. Two, that's got a better carbon footprint. But three, that allows you to then do things with the feed that you're talking about in terms of data overlays and stuff like that without having to have lots of people at the ground. And I'll come back to it. That's the difference versus seven years ago, and us taking tapes out of the back of cameras. So where are we in another seven years from now? And the evolution of how this stuff is produced uh, and managed is is exceptional, really. Um, and, and I think you know that is the benefit of harnessing technology. I mean, I think I think there's always a danger with
0: technology, by the way, which is uh, we neglect technologies that are old because we're obsessed with novelty. And I think there's, you know, I always remember, funnily enough, uh, you know, the people at Thinkbox, every time they attended a conference on digital advertising, they had to stand up and say, television is digital, okay? Because everybody was obsessed with what you could do on some shitty little internet banner um, because it was new and novel, okay? And, you know, I I noticed this about video conferencing. I always thought video conferencing had reached a level now, you know, about three or four years ago where it should have started to replace physical travel a lot but until the pandemic it didn't and part of the reason was people just went yeah yeah video conferencing we've had it for 15 years nobody really uses it and they were judging it really on their crappy perception of a failed video conference that had happened in 2008 or a Skype call that went badly wrong in 2013 and of course it's worth noting that technology improves across the board and we talk about I, I, an example of this, by the way, is you know I was I always call this the coach travel problem, which is a lot of us haven't really travelled on a coach since we were students, and we imagine that the experience of coach travel is as shitty now as it was then, whereas in reality you get toilets, seat back TVs, people bringing you a drink, and so um, I think I think it is interesting that our attention in terms of new technology always goes to the thing that happens to be disproportionately novel and weird like the metaverse whereas more important changes are happening in established technologies which we don't tend to write about because they don't seem quite so newsworthy and I always said you know if I the the problem I had in 2017 is if I went around saying uh, you know um, uh, you know video conferencing I think it's a really important technology I look like that guy on the fast show who used to go around going isn't electricity brilliant you know, you looked fundamentally ridiculous. But your point is that you can film these matches. You've got four, presumably 4K cameras rigged up at the ground, remote production, remote commentary yep. as well, which is fascinating. Yeah, so, yeah. You know,
2: uh, and so effectively, that's all coming out of the ground without... The, the, the only physical input to that is the cameramen uh, who, who, who are filming that. But I, I think it comes back to, Rory, you know, the consumption point is is, is the habit changer, you know, how many more people now are comfortable buying online because they've had to be as a result of the pandemic than they probably were before where, okay, we know online was online payments were increasing, but you still had an element of, I'm not sure, I'm nervous around it, I'd rather go and pay in person. And, and now that's become the norm. And so I think in terms of the way we produce and manage content, that, that's that's just become... Uh, established and that, and that is the benefit of, of the technology, but we have to uh, we have to make sure that we we balance that, as I said, with uh, the with, with the live experience for for watching our clubs.
0: And, uh, and the lucky thing about the pandemic was giving all season ticket holders free online access. Under normal circumstances, that probably would have involved three years of argument, wouldn't it? Before you did that, uh, now obviously necessity the mother of invention. Uh, effectively you know there's no you know if someone's paying for a season ticket it would be pretty unjust given that they can't attend the game not to give them that option and so it forces you to make decisions at a speed and with a you know with i suppose permission i think i think a large part of the progress is permission to fail that when you have exceptional circumstances you're allowed to try something different and we do have i think a risk-averse culture in particularly in british business i think where you know it's it, it's far better to improve something incrementally by one and a half percent as far as your career goes, than taking a risk which might might not work out but might improve things by twenty five percent. So, what what proportion of revenues then to clubs now come from either broadcast rights or online rights, and has that gone up since the pandemic as a net result of this? growth in so I mean,
2: our, our clubs as I said at the start in general would do about 250 million pounds in um, in live attendance revenue which is predominantly ticketed income and a, a little bit of corporate hospitality income on top of that um, and in broadcasting um, and streaming we're probably around about 170 and um, the interesting right. bit is though again Go back five years, we were probably half of that. So that gap is narrowing, yeah. um, and clearly, what what our what our objective is to grow the one seventy and the two fifty and collectively grow the pie. Um, but I agree with you completely that if either
0: said to my I, I'm not even sure, by the way, that streaming might not be in some people's cases the gateway drug to live I, attendance. I, I, I agree, but I think. I mean, the weirdest thing that happened with video is everybody thought, okay, home video rental, death of the cinema. And bizarrely, the opposite happened because it reawakened people's interest in features. And I, and I
2: agree, but I think sometimes you need events to change that thinking. So to your point, if I'd have sat down with my clubs two years ago and said, okay, we're going to stream every match, that would have taken at least three years, three years you referenced to have that conversation, at least. Whereas yeah. now... I think we've we've obviously been through what we did last season. We've got a balanced model at the moment, but we are having much more informed and open debates with our membership about what does the future look like, um, and and they are driving that debate because actually they're saying no. We know that there are different audiences that we can now cater for, and we don't necessarily believe that one will be affected at the expense of the other. And, and, and Rory, I think the, you know the final point in that is. You can't ignore the will of the supporter or the consumer. And what we're now getting is fans saying to us, we want you to make that available to us. Why isn't it available to us? And so that's the the challenge that you have to to bear in mind with that as well.
0: So expectations also change. Uh, Nobody thought it weird that you couldn't watch online five years ago, of course. And now it it starts to feel like a bit of an artificial restriction. Exactly. So one thing is the relationship with the football club. Um, actually, particularly at that local level, is a magical relationship. It's uh, one with very very high levels of loyalty. Do you think now you have a two way direct relationship with the fans? It opens up huge new opportunities for sponsorship. Because I mean, one of my experiences was, if you if you cross sell something through an existing relationship this was a direct marketing finding your response rate can be literally 10 times higher than if you approach someone cold so if if you actually say your local football club recommends kazu for example or recommends uh you know some you know something else the potency of that introduction through pre-existing relationship is extraordinary in terms of behavioral change and getting people to adopt new behaviors So um, do you think you could use online channels massively? You know, so, okay, the old style of sponsorship was shirts and it was hoardings around the pitch. I didn't realize this, but apparently in the US, they digitally tweak the hoardings so that the hoardings around a baseball stand are physical in the local area. But they're replaced with other brands for people watching further afield, which is kind of weird and interesting. I never I never realized that was going on, that bit of sleight of hand. But do you think there are opportunities now where you can actually effectively you can think of yourself as a member organization, a little bit like an American Express or, a, um, you know, an RAC, if you like, where your ability to cross sell to pre-existing members can be used much more than just that sort of shirt sponsorship, hoardings, bit of entertainment um, that you can in other words, you can take the intensity of the relationship much, much. and Do you have a kind of fantasy new class of sponsor, in other words? So the the kind of brands which tend to sponsor sport are a particular type. And, you know, if there was a project you'd love to try with a fantasy sponsor, what would it be, I guess? So
2: I I, I think yeah. that there is still a place for all of the awareness building uh, aspects that you talked about. But I think there's no doubt that what, you, what we can now offer a partner and what increasing number of our partners are interested in is what does a direct relationship with, with, with a potential you know, consumer of theirs look like, but also what's the insight you can give them on their behaviours. So what do you know about these people that informs how they manage and live their, and live their lives? And, and I guess to answer your question, what, what, what would we love to do I think we would probably love to work with, you know, one of the gaps that we've got, big gap really is a brand that comes in and supports all of our work in all the 72 communities. So that effectively supports all the outreach that I talked about in terms of the stuff that the clubs did in the pandemic. And what can we offer in return to that is, well, probably the biggest insight into a CSR programme in the UK, you know, and direct access to families in those homes and their roles in the communities. Now there's an onus on us to, make sure that we've got the relevant data and insight. And that's a journey for us that we're still on. But I think, you know, that that relevance Mm. and support and insight that doesn't need necessarily the branding aspect, but needs the commitment, the relationship, the positive benefit and the direct understanding of those individuals in the community is probably the one thing that we would really love to try to answer your question.
0: And, and, And I suppose there's also new potential again in employer brands, isn't there, in that... Um, one of the things I've noticed post-pandemic and possibly post-Brexit as well is, um, uh, and you have to say, you know, for most people, this is a positive, okay, not necessarily for shareholders, but for everybody else, is suddenly there is actually anxiety and concern about attracting and holding on to employees. Whereas, to be absolutely honest, four years ago, it was just assumed there was like, a you know, a limitless uh, supply of Uh, You know, infinitely replaceable minimum wage workers, and that I think that confident assumption has taken a big hit, uh, in in the last couple of years, particularly actually in the last six months with the fuel crisis and so on. And companies are starting to worry about how to keep their employees happy. And it strikes me if you have one of those large employers, like a large retailer, you offer a pretty much ready made way of uh, allowing them some benefit at the local level. Yes. Which could be so really interesting. health
2: and wellbeing programmes run by the community scheme of the local football club, uh, actual physical use of facilities, work exchange programmes, mental health benefits. Yeah. All of these things are aspects that we run in our communities now, that we run in our clubs now, and that we could offer those types of, of organisations. I, th- I think the flip side is those organisations have got considerable resource and experience outside of just financial benefit that they can offer to us, professional services, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think, you know, a more evolved relationship around those types of things is, is yes, what you're talking about would be, you know, to answer your question, the the fantasy-type partnership for us, if possible. So there
0: could be a kind of almost a kind of barter arrangement.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Very, very interesting. No, I mean, I, I I see this as absolutely fascinating and slightly, I, I must admit, I'm gratified by it because I have spent about 15 years effectively saying we worry far too much about revenue abstraction and cannibalization. That actually uh, it's it's based on a kind of economic understanding of human behavior that you decide you want to watch, you know, Grimsby or whatever it is. And then you decide how you're going to watch it as though they're interchangeable. And then the assumption that you'll choose to watch it by the cheapest means possible. And none of those things strike me as very safe assumptions if you look at real human behavior. And yet they drive a huge amount of, of business decision making. Um, you know, and I you know, I was, I'll give you an example of this, which is just a parallel, which is things like Seat Frog, which is a system where you buy a second class rail ticket. and You can bid for a first class upgrade. Now, I bet there were, you know, you know, years of discussions with Seatfrog saying no, but then nobody will buy a full fair first class ticket. I said, no, no, no. It's a totally different thing. Right. There's the business traveler who wants to know he's sitting in first class. He's not going to take that risk. Then there's the younger person who goes, well, help, hell's bells. It's kind of a bet. You know, if I can get into first for 15 quid, I'll take the chance and see what happens. And the idea that actually the business traveller will will actually resort to seat frog, it's never going to happen, okay? So it's a a completely misplaced fear. And I think this is great. Because I think think you can... And this is a very weird thing. I think if you're too protective of your media... And this is, a, now, I'm not really in a position to criticise the Beatles, but if you notice with the Beatles, okay, that you, know, you never get a Beatles track used in advertising. It's very rare to have it as a soundtrack on a film unless the film's, like, about the Beatles, okay? And I think they've made the mistake of being a bit too protective, that actually, although everybody agrees they're the greatest band ever, people don't actually listen to them all that much, <laughs> okay? <laughs> now, that's a very mischievous assertion, I'm sure there are people who'll prove me wrong. But I think that business of saying, no, 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 you know, we have our business model from 25 years ago. People bought this. There was only one way of buying it. Um, uh, Actually, everything I learned from direct marketing is the more channels through which the thing is available, the more you sell, the better you do. Byron Sharp would say the same thing. It's mental and physical distribution. And um, being big is important in itself and therefore constraining the number of people who can follow you is, you know, looks clever in the short term, but it's a long term mistake. So I'm really, really delighted to hear this. Well, it just I've noticed that uh, Rob's appeared to sort of wave at me. So all, all that remains for me to say, I think, is thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Again, that's all for this episode of On Brand. Uh, The podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight, and for more information on powering your business growth, just visit their website at alfinsight.com. That's alf insight.com. The series, as ever, is produced and expertly edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then apparently it helps some sort of algorithm if you give us a like. So once again... Huge thanks, Ben, and thank you for listening.